Hi, I'm Paul Crusette. I'm going to tell you the story of Miami, the whole story. But first, let's lay some groundwork. Fifty million years ago, all the continents that we know today were one, joined together as the giant supercontinent of Pangaea. Deep within the Pangaean interior was the place that would one day become Florida. As this giant landmass began to break up, the continents of Africa, North America, and South America rifted apart, and at the point where the three met, the land was pulled in every direction, becoming stretched and flattened. Eventually, a piece of continental crust broke free from Africa and was carried away on the coattails of the North American continent. We know this piece today as the Florida platform, and you can clearly see in satellite imagery that half the platform is currently submerged in the Gulf of Mexico, while the dry part which makes up the state of Florida, occupies the platform's eastern half. The pulling and stretching of the Florida platform during the breakup of Pangaea had a couple of significant consequences. First, it is responsible for the pervasive flatness of Florida. Any unevenness in the terrain that may have existed previously was thoroughly worked out like a baker turning raw dough into a pizza pie. Secondly, as the land stretched and thinned, it fell beneath the waves of the young Atlantic Ocean, where it would remain submerged for more than 200 million years. During this time, it was the floor of a vast shallow tropical sea, developing a thick limestone deposit over the eons. Limestone forms on seafloors due to the activity of marine life. As sea creatures die, their shells and skeletons pile up on the ocean floor, eventually compacting into solid rock over vast stretches of time. These remains are mostly made up of calcium, the same stuff that our bones are made out of. And so limestone is a calcitic rock. Now, One of the key features of limestone is that it is soluble in acid. And so, all over the world, anywhere that limestone has been exposed to the atmosphere, slightly acidic rainwater does its tireless work on the rocks, ever so slowly dissolving and sculpting the land into strange shapes. The limestone deposit that rests atop the Florida platform is among the thickest, largest, and purest in the world. And when it finally rose above the sea for the first time about 25 million years ago, it was as a pristine blank slate upon which nature would engrave the unique landscapes we see today. It is limestone that truly drives the character of Florida. It's everywhere, in one form or another. It's responsible for the many sinkholes, 
underground rivers and springs throughout the state. And it is the home of the great Floridan aquifer that lies deep below it. And as we will see, it is even responsible for the Everglades and the spongy bedrock beneath Miami. As the march of time carried on, the world continued to change. Roughly 5 million years ago, the Isthmus of Panama closed, connecting North and South America into a single landmass, and cutting off the Atlantic Ocean from the Pacific. When this land bridge formed, powerful global currents were suddenly cut off from their old course, and forced up into the Gulf of Mexico and around the Florida platform, creating what we know today as the Gulf Stream. This current, which sweeps past our doorstep, will play a major role in the history of Miami. And if you've ever dipped your toes into the waters of Miami Beach and wondered why it's so warm, it's because you're standing in the Gulf Stream, which carries almost a billion cubic feet of warm tropical water past Miami's shores every second. But the pace of change really starts to pick up about 2.6 million years ago. The Pleistocene Epoch began at this time, ushering in a series of ice ages that created extreme fluctuations in global sea levels, from up to 300 feet lower to 100 feet higher than today's sea level. Throughout this time, the coastline of Florida took many shapes. When sea levels were high, Florida would be submerged and the coastline would recede, creating beaches at what is today inland Florida. At times of low sea levels, nearly the entire Florida platform was exposed, and one could stand on dry land a hundred miles west of Tampa Bay. But during the periods of stable sea levels, the coastline began to solidify. Powerful longshore currents, driven by the Gulf Stream speeding around the coast, set up the conditions for the formation of barrier islands piling sand and sedimentation in thick lines upon the shores. This is the same process that formed Key Biscayne, Miami Beach, and the entire island chain from Miami to Jacksonville. Over time, the compaction and cementation of this coastal sediment formed chains of hardened bedrock, which were more resilient to erosion than the exposed limestone of Florida's inland plains. This tougher bedrock of the coast created the modern-day outline of Florida. But while the coasts were fortified through this process, the exposed limestone between the coasts was more susceptible to erosion. Slowly but surely, a sort of natural bowl began to be carved out of South Florida's interior, with the coastal ridges forming the rim. The Imokalee Ridge formed the West Coast Rim and is the location of today's Fort Myers and Naples, running from the Caloosahatchee River south to the Big Cypress Swamp. Over on the East Coast, another ridge formed, called the Eastern Coastal Ridge, and at its southernmost portion lies the Miami Rock Ridge, and it is literally the foundation of Miami. Further north, the same process created a wide and shallow valley 
in the middle of Florida, between two similar coastal ridges. And in the area around Orlando, a pockmarked landscape of sinkholes and springs developed into the Kissimmee River drainage basin, which flowed south down the entire length of the peninsula before finally emptying into the Florida Straits. Now, fast forwarding to about 17,000 years ago, the Earth began to slowly emerge from the last ice age. Gradually, the waters rose once more, and the flow of the Kissimmee River slowed. About 6,000 years ago, a large, shallow depression of clay deposits formed near today's Palm Beach and began to fill with Kissimmee drainage, creating Lake Okeechobee. Now, eventually, the water overflowed from the lake's southern banks in a wide sheet, beginning the process that would create the Everglades. By this time, sea levels had neared where they are today, a mere 15 feet lower than the southern bank of Lake Okeechobee. But the water leaving the lake, hemmed in as it is by the Imokali and eastern coastal ridges, must travel 100 miles to the Gulf of Mexico and Florida Bay. This leaves an average gradient of only 2 inches of descent for every mile. The water leaving Lake Okeechobee flows only half a mile a day, taking months or even years to reach the sea. Too slow to form a typical river channel, the water spreads out across the entire landscape. By 5,000 years ago, the entire inland bowl of South Florida was filled, and the Everglades as we know it was formed. Moving so slowly that large, grassy marshlands grow happily within it, it is nevertheless a true river, draining fresh water from the land to the sea, which is how it got its apt nickname, the River of Grass. South Florida is therefore inundated with water, both inside and out. Although its primary route to the ocean is southwest into Florida Bay, the water from the Everglades nevertheless finds its way to the coast in a variety of ways, cutting right through Miami, both above and below the ground. Boys and girls, it's time we talked about ooids. As we've just learned, the Miami Rock Ridge forms the eastern rim of the Everglades and is made up of compacted sediment deposited by ocean waves. In particular, Miami's local sediment is a form of limestone oolite. This is what you get when shallow waves roll around individual grains of sand in a limestone powder. The powder cakes onto the grain and hardens, snowballing it into a little nugget, called an ooid. The ooid grows until it is too big and heavy to be pushed around anymore, at which point it settles on the seabed and adds to the mounting sedimentation. Over time, the pile of ooids is compacted and fuses into a solid rock, oolite. This is the process that formed the Miami Rock Ridge, within a shallow tidal plain that existed in Miami tens of thousands of years ago. Miami oolite is more resilient to erosion than the pure naked limestone beneath Florida's interior, 
but it is nevertheless a form of soluble calcitic rock. So, in the spaces between individual ooids, rainwater infiltrates and washes out countless tiny holes, turning the rock into a sponge through which water can easily pass. Only inches beneath our feet, Fresh water from the Everglades slowly percolates eastward towards the ocean every day. At the time the city was first built, so much fresh water filled the ground that springs could be found all along the coast and even within the bay itself. This waterlogged bedrock makes building basements in Miami a practical impossibility. And it's the reason that no seawall will ever be large enough to hold back higher sea levels. The water would simply slip beneath the wall and come right back up the other side. At some places along the ridge, water from the Everglades does not have to move through the rocks at all. See, back when the ooids were being deposited in the tidal flats, underwater channels cut through them just like those that cut through the sandbars of today's Biscayne Bay. When the Oolite Ridge solidified and sea levels dropped, these channels remained as exposed low points on the ridge, and they allowed water from the Everglades to spill right over the top, before flowing the short distance east to the sea. In these places, actual river channels were carved into the bedrock, creating what we now know as the New River in Fort Lauderdale, the Little River at Miami's northern edge, and the Miami River itself, along with countless smaller creeks and streams that cut across the landscape. Each of these is essentially a leak in the Everglades. The original head of the Miami River was located near what is now Northwest 27th Avenue and 20th Street, it's an entire mile east of the airport. If you go there now, there's nothing remarkable about this sprawling intersection of six-lane streets. It's got a boat shop on one corner and a Palacio de los Jugos on the other. But if you stood there at the turn of the 20th century, you would have been standing at the edge of the Everglades, looking west over its endless watery expanse. You would have seen water speeding up as it was funneled over the top of the ridge before cascading down a short course of rapids that bottomed out at the head of the river channel. Many photographs of the Miami River rapids survive today, but the only evidence of their existence remaining at this location is a tiny park on the south bank of the river called the Miami River Rapids Mini Park. The entire natural course of the Miami River, from the Everglades to the sea, was only four miles long. It was much shallower than it is today, and it's recorded that it would completely dry up during drought. Yet it is this short, shallow river that will become the epicenter of Miami's story. So far, we've traced the journey of water from the springs and rivers of the Kissimmee Valley as it makes its way down to Lake Okeechobee and then into the Everglades. After cutting across the Miami Rock Ridge through the Miami River, its role in shaping the South Florida landscape finally comes to an end as it empties into a wide, shallow bay, the magnificent Biscayne Bay. 
The southern end of Biscayne Bay marks the northernmost end of the Great Florida Reef. This wonder of the natural world is the third largest coral reef on Earth, extending down the entire length of the Florida Keys, and it is the only coral reef in the continental United States. As you may know, coral reefs grow like a giant superorganism. As old coral dies, their calcified skeletons become the bedrock upon which new coral builds. In this way, an undersea ridge of coral rock develops. Today's Florida reef began growing at the end of the last ice age, when temperatures warmed, but it has a predecessor. Before the last ice age, a more ancient reef grew in the same place. At that time, sea levels were about 25 feet higher than they are now, and so the ancient reef developed at a higher elevation. When sea levels fell, this ancient coral ridge emerged from the waves and is what we know today as the Florida Keys. Like the Miami Oolite Ridge, the coral rock ridge that makes up the Florida Keys is more resilient to erosion than the limestone beneath it. Together, the Miami Ridge and the Coral Ridge formed barriers that channeled water onto the bare limestone between them during the last ice age. This is the same process that formed the bowl of the Everglades, only on a smaller scale, and it carved out the depression of Biscayne Bay. The bay began to fill up a mere 5,000 years ago. Only a shallow lagoon for much of that time, sand and mud banks developed along its shores, giving rise to a rich ecosystem of marsh and mangroves. As the sea slowly rose to its present levels, the barrier islands began to take their present shape, as the Gulf Stream, coming whipping around the Keys, dumped sand at the edge of the bay. Key Biscayne and Miami Beach formed through this process and took shape in only the last few thousand years. Biscayne Bay is therefore a place of transition, where the coral islands of the Keys give way to the barrier islands that line the east coast of the United States. In between, a stretch of tidal sand and mud banks regulates the flow of the sea in and out of the bay, creating a protected and calm marine environment. Before a series of projects to drain the Everglades forever changed it in the first half of the 20th century, Biscayne Bay was a pristine environment teeming with life. All along the coast, thick mangroves stretched into the muddy banks. The floor of the bay was covered with seagrasses, soft corals, and sponges. And fresh water flowed into it in abundance from rivers and springs, and the grasses trapped sediments, creating crystal-clear water perused by herds of manatees. Up on the ridge of the mainland, sunny pine rocklands which are grassy plains covered with slash pines, dominated. But near the coast, and throughout most of the city of Miami, great tropical hardwood hammocks formed a shady and protective woodland. These pockets of forest formed around areas that were less prone to seasonal flooding due to their higher elevations. They were filled with hardwood trees and were denser than the pervasive pine rocklands. 
Out on the sandy barrier islands, low grasses and thick mangroves dominated. There was not a coconut palm in sight. These, as we will see, will be brought from elsewhere in some of the earliest modern efforts to make a profit off the land. So we now know about the remarkable and truly unique processes that formed the South Florida landscape. However, looking at modern Miami, it's obvious that the landscape has undergone some drastic changes. In 1908, the Miami River Rapids were dynamited to increase the river's flow, the first in a series of projects to drain the Everglades and open it up for development. These projects have wreaked havoc on the hydrology of the land and the ecology of the bay. And since then, the city itself has grown ever outward from the mouth of the river, replacing the original pine forests, wetlands, and hardwood hammocks with the pavement of the urban landscape, stretching far into the Everglades itself. But it's still possible to see what Miami looked like back before all this happened, thanks to preservation efforts that have prevailed against the onslaught of development. At both Crandon Park and Bill Baggs State Park on Key Biscayne, one can get a sense of what the first humans to encounter these islands found. It wasn't wide, pristine beaches and pricey hotels. The rich, tropical hammocks that occupied the Highland Ridge have been almost completely lost. But one gem sits right at the southern end of Brickell, where Simpson Park can be found hidden in plain sight, just off South Miami Avenue at Southwest 17th Road. There, conservationists have worked tirelessly for decades cultivating 100% native woodland plants. It's one of the last vestiges of the great tropical hammocks through which walked the Tequesta natives Juan Ponce de Leon, Julia Tuttle, and Henry Flagler. Although the course of development has leveled most of Miami, several prominent oolite outcrops can be found, giving us a glimpse of what our bedrock looks like. One such outcrop lies beneath the Brickell Metro Rail Station, and another, known as Silver Bluff, rises above South Bayshore Drive, supporting a series of grand homes on the way into Coconut Grove. There, you can get a sense of just how full of holes Miami really is. The Everglades, of course, is still right at Miami's doorstep, though you have to go a little farther to get to it now. And it's a little mind-blowing when you realize that its diverse landscape and rich wildlife represents the natural condition of everything west of 27th Avenue. Finally, Biscayne National Park occupies the entire southern half of the bay. The mangroves that once encircled the entire bay can still be found there, and you can snorkel among the coral reef, swim with the dolphins, and watch herds of peaceful manatees make their way across the calm and shallow water. There are countless more hidden gems of nature to be found throughout Miami, and we simply can't name them all. But we hope you've enjoyed learning about the remarkable landscape that surrounds the city, and we encourage you to get out there and explore it.
Like what you heard? The Story of Miami will be publishing new episodes every two weeks. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Story of Miami. And visit our website, storyofmiami.com, for more information about the podcast. See you next time.